Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, your composer host in Minneapolis, and I'm pleased to bring you this episode with one of my favorite podcasters, Richard Russell. His podcast, Creativity and Composition, which he put out from 2005 to 2007, has a bunch of great tips about composing. So I invited Richard onto Composer Quest to share some of his thoughts, and we ended up talking about all sorts of things, from his study of feminist musicology to Shakespeare, to Plato, and how to get paid for performances through ASCAP. Just a reminder, there's still time left to join the Fortune Cookie songwriting quest and get your song on the official Composer Quest Fortune Cookie album. Visit ComposerQuest.com Quest 6 for more details. And as always, you can stream or download all these Composer Quest interviews at ComposerQuest.com or iTunes or Stitcher. Now on to my talk with Richard Russell. Well, Richard, I really enjoyed your podcast series, Creativity and Composition. I know that's been several years since you were working on that, but what kind of things did that teach you working on that podcast? I began those podcasts as a little bit of self-exploration. I was working at a big conservatory in New York City, and I kept getting questions asked of me that I thought I should start to explore a little bit for my own self, but also as a way to get the answers out there for other people, and also just as part of the career of being a composer, getting my name out there, getting to be viewed as somebody who might be an expert in the field. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I did this for about two or three years, and it slowly began to dawn on me that, gosh, this mission that I'm on could use some deeper resonance. So at that point, I actually stopped doing my podcast and went and got a master's degree, uh, not in music, as a matter of fact, but just in liberal arts, philosophy, trying to figure out what do we mean by aesthetics, what do we mean by a piece of music, and all those kinds of existential questions. best pieces of music I ever wrote was when I was getting my master's degree and I started studying the feminist movement in music and I never had thought about that before. I don't think they teach you that in a conservatory, but I asked myself if I was a female composer, what would my music sound like? What are the goals that a female composer would have that might be different than a male composer? And I don't know. I only know what I studied. I'm still a male. I've never been a female. But just to put myself into a different frame of reference stretched me into writing pieces I never would have thought to write before. So what do you consider feminine and masculine traits in music? Well, you know, I can parrot back to you what the literature says. You know, for one thing, the Sonata Allegro form, and this comes from a feminist musicologist by the name of Susan McClary. She wrote a famous book called Feminine Endings at the end of the 80s, I think. And she talked about the patriarchy of the Sonata Allegro form. The Sonata Allegro form has two opening themes in two different keys. 
the first theme tends to be the heroic, happy one. The second theme might be in the minor key. It's generally a little bit softer, a little bit more what we would call feminine. And then by the time we get to the recap, the secondary theme, the feminine theme, must subjugate itself to the masculine theme. It goes back to the tonic key. Hmm. That's interesting. I, yeah, never had thought of it that way before, but <laughs> it is interesting how, in the past anyways, people thought of major key as having traits of being masculine and minor key feminine, which I don't know what the basis of that is really, but... Well, trust me, there's been lots and lots and lots of papers written about this very topic, and I think a lot of it happens to be easily dismissed. How can you say that one thing... That there's a number of examples of piano sonatas in a minor key that um, sort of upset this sort of convention. Susan McClary takes the example of Tchaikovsky, who was gay, and says, okay, here he is taking the traditionally masculine theme, and he does all kinds of things with it that you would not expect of a hyper-masculine male to do. You know, you can say, that's a bunch of baloney, okay? You know, Tchaikovsky was a good composer, what difference does it make? But just to study these ideas uh, made me start to stretch myself as a composer. Sure. Do you remember any thing specific that Tchaikovsky did that was I would defer to the Susan McClary book it's called Feminine Endings and she has a whole chapter on uh, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony one thing I will say is that the feminist musicologists tend to think that male composers are too goal-oriented. They're all about getting to the climax of the piece. And, you know, this is another one of those things that makes you think, oh, that's just kind of stereotypical male-female dichotomy things. But as a composer, you can take a step back and ask yourself the question, gee, what am I doing here as a composer when I'm writing a piece of music? Am I trying to get to the climax of the piece? What if the climax is at the beginning of the piece and the rest of it is just sort of an exploration? What if the climax happens in the middle of the piece? What if there's no climax at all? These are just kinds of things that make you approach your composition in a different way. My violin sonata is three movements, and I decided to write the first movement just as sort of a virtuosic entry into this world. The second movement, I decided to write that movement sort of from a feminine perspective, even though I don't think you can hear that if you listen to it.
And then the third movement, I wanted to go into hyper-masculinity, all the things that the feminist composers don't like. I said, okay, I'm going to put all of that into the third movement. And if you listen to this violence, not a movement one, two, and three, maybe you hear this, maybe you don't. But as a composer in the background, that's what helped me move forward with that piece. is something that I feel like I'm still learning about. I don't know. Do you have any tips for composers who are struggling with figuring out how to have some sort of form to their piece? Start with the most basic, simplest forms and then try to grow from there. Um, I think that Sonata Allegra form is a little bit too mapped out for you. What I prefer is the ABA form. Start with something that you're interested in and move on to a B section. Whether that's growing and developing your first section, whether that's totally different than your first section, that's up to you. But then you get back into a little bit of a recap, a little bit of a reminiscence of the first part of the piece, ABA. It's a very uh, dramatic arc form, and I think that's a great place to start. Another piece of advice I would give is to write songs. Take a poet like uh, Emily Dickinson, and set her texts to music. The form is kind of built in for you. You can't help but try to follow the form that the poem gives you. Yeah, that's good advice with trying to set music to a poem, which I have tried, and maybe I'm picking the wrong poems, but that's kind of tough sometimes. Well, you know, poetry is a tricky thing. Shakespeare, for instance, is horrible to set to music. Edgar Allan Poe is horrible to set to music because the rhythms are all built in. You as a composer, if you're working against those rhythms, what are you doing? Are you better than Shakespeare? Are you better than Poe? I mean, come on. As a composer, you, feel, you, you have to feel like I have something to add to this poem musically. Music will help tell the story of what this poet is trying to do. I, I choose Emily Dickinson because her music tends to not have a lot of rhythm. It so happens I've been commissioned to write pieces with texts by Shakespeare, with texts by Poe, and boy, I just roll my eyes and think, but the language is so musical already, I can't add anything to it. I can only subtract from the language. Well, I really enjoyed your piece of music you set to the Thomas Hardy poem, Ah, uh, Are You Digging on My Grave? Could you maybe summarize what happens in that poem? That's a dialogue between somebody buried in the grave and somebody above the grave. And the person in the grave is wondering, who is that person above my grave, digging on my grave? Is it my lover? Is it my wife? Is it my whoever? And it turns out at the end of the poem, the person discovers, oh, it's my dog. I had led such a horrible life that the only person who's faithful to me in my grave is my dog. So that's a bit of a comic kind of, you want to have a punchline at the end. What I chose to do is to have this hyper-dramatic kind of, are you digging on my grave in a very campy kind of way. And who is digging on my grave? See? 
when we find out it was the dog at the end, I tried to make, you know, lighten the mood with the music. Oh, it is I, my mistress dear, your little dog who still lives near, and much I hope my movements here have not disturbed your rest. If you want to have a dead person narrating, and you know it's supposed to be comic and light, you have to kind of go campy. You can't be very, very serious in a minor key and, uh-oh, I'm dead. You know, you have to set the tone musically so the audience knows what to expect. Mm-hmm. What would you consider your most successful piece of music? For me, the best piece I've ever written is a piece called Adagio for Strings, um, which is a great title, and I've often said this joke, Everybody should write a piece called Adagio for Strings because of Samuel Barber's famous piece. Once you've got an Adagio for Strings and people start Googling Adagio for Strings, sooner or later your name's going to pop up. Somebody told me that he's going to name his next piece Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I said, ah, that's a very good idea. Uh, So Adagio for Strings is actually an Adagio from a string quartet that I've been writing for six or seven years. What about that makes it work musically? That's a good question. You know, I was in graduate school thinking about a lot of these questions I've just talked about, and I kind of start off a piece figuring out whether or not this is a piece that I want to go to a big boom at the end. Do I want to start it off with a big boom at the beginning? And for me, this piece just kind of wrote itself. It starts with the strings sounding like they're just tuning. One string comes in, the next string comes in, the next string comes in, and all of a sudden, some harmony starts to unfold itself. And it reaches a little bit of a climax there, and yet still feels incomplete. Then I start a huge section B, which could almost be another movement by itself. I return at the end. This is a huge ABA form. And I return to the end with this tuning on E. What kind of courses or things do you study in an aesthetics graduate program? Well, you know, when I started studying aesthetics, I didn't really understand that I was opening a huge can of worms. Aesthetics is a subfield of ethics, which I didn't know. And aesthetics opened up the can of worms of what is a philosophy of music. 
and this was when I started becoming introduced to philosophers of music, such as Schopenhauer. Uh, Nietzsche had a lot to say about music. Um, the most influential philosopher of the 20th century would be Theodore Adorno, who had so much to say about music that he kind of turned music into a dead end with his philosophy. And all of these ideas of what constitutes beauty is fascinating to figure out that in the 16th century this meant beauty, in the 18th century this meant beauty, and what do we think about beauty in the 20th century? How in the 20th century did we start to figure out that something that's ugly could be beautiful? And how does that reflect the times? How does that reflect the 20th century as being a war-torn century? World War One, World War Two, the atomic age, the fear of nuclear annihilation, had a lot to do with the way music was working in the 20th century. And I think that music that we hold dear, that stands up to the test of time, is music that tends to reflect the time, that is philosophically congruent with what's going on in the world. When I got to the field of aesthetics, uh, I took a semester in aesthetics, that's when I started to study all these things. Discovering what all of these different philosophers had to say about aesthetics uh, Plato. Plato was very suspicious of music. Plato thought music was going to actually undermine what we're trying to build here in a successful republic. I'm curious why Plato thought music would undermine his republic. He was... <laughs> well, Plato thought that uh, music gets under your skin. Music is uh, an emotional field that doesn't help you think rationally. And so music has the ability to undermine conservative politics. What you, you think about the protest songs of the 1960s, I think, I think Plato was on to something there. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So have all these big ideas and philosophies seeped into your music? In a way, yes, because you start to figure out what do I agree with, what don't I agree with. It also opens up your ears. You go to a concert and hear a piece of music that you normally would say, I don't like this. Maybe you figure out, oh, this is a piece of music that's being presented to me from the philosophy of ugly is beautiful. And you ask yourself, does the composer succeed? And even if you don't necessarily like the piece of music, you might respect that it was a good try. So as you ask, does it seep into my music? Yes, because I start to ask myself these questions. What am I trying to express here aesthetically? think are elements of a good melody? I think that a good melody is something that is pleasing and rational, something that makes sense in a logical way, that builds upon it. It's like making a good sentence without interrupting yourself. Uh, if you can make a good sentence, okay, you know what that means. If you can make a good melody, you know what that means. It's kind of got the noun and the verb and the adjective. You can make the melody more colorful by putting in a few things like sequences. 
a weird harmonic note that doesn't seem to fit in. But, you know, what is a good melody? Uh, it's just something for me that sort of happens instinctually. I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you recommend getting your music out to performers? And when should you charge for scores? And when should you give it out for free? Getting your music out to performers is a multifaceted project. I worked at a music conservatory for quite a long time, and that was a great place to work. If anybody can do it, I highly recommend it. And the reason is, is because you end up knowing lots and lots of performers. They're all students, but you know what? Some of these students are going to take off in their careers, and they're going to remember who you are if they've ever performed a piece of music of yours. So getting yourself plugged into your local college even if it's not local, if it's, you know, within driving distance, 30, 40 miles away, get familiar with the composition department there, get familiar with the music department there, attend all their concerts, and join everything you can. Join ASCAP. Uh, most of the money I make from my music doesn't come from anybody commissioning me, but comes from my performances, which ASCAP collects royalties on and returns to me. I don't say that ASCAP or VMI, either one is better than the other. You have to do your own homework on that. But I have enjoyed working with ASCAP. So as I say, attend lots and lots of concerts. Uh, attend concerts of performers who are performing new music. Don't go to a concert with a violinist who's performing Mozart and Beethoven. Go to a concert where somebody's performing something by Bartok, by Stravinsky, or even into the 21st century, something by Chen Yi or Paul Moravec or Jennifer Higdon. These are people who are going to be interested in performing new music. Go introduce yourself. Congratulate them. See if you can get their card. They probably have a website. And then approach them via email within a week. Say, hey, I really like that concert you presented last week, and I know that you love new music are you interested in hearing some of my music or performing some of my music it's also a good idea to figure out which instruments are looking for new music one thing i've learned is that flute players just gravitate toward new music and if you happen to like writing for the flute that's great i don't happen to like writing for the flute i started writing for the flute because i knew that flute players love new music uh also look for unusual instruments if you're interested in that there's people who perform exclusively on very very low flutes for instance they perform on the bass flute the contrabass flute if you're interested in writing for some kinds of unusual instruments like that first of all you have to be aware that you're not going to get a lot of repeat performances because there's not a whole lot of contrabass flute players out there but you've also guaranteed that you've got yourself a performance if you can approach such a player and get them interested in your music. There is a, um, a duo that is double bass and viola, I think. There's not a lot of music out there for double bass and viola. If you write a piece for that, they're going to welcome you. Um, I know a duo who's percussion plus soprano. There's not a lot of percussion plus soprano out there. If you write a piece for percussion plus soprano, these are people who'd be interested in talking to you. Yeah, great advice. A little bit back to the ASCAP thing. What makes the difference whether or not you get paid like a bigger royalty chunk? ASCAP pays royalties based on a number of factors. 
how long is the piece you wrote. You're going to get paid more for a 10-minute piece than you are for a 2-minute piece in terms of royalties. And I've noticed some very calculating composers seem to know what those numbers are and always write a piece that's one minute longer so they get a higher royalty. That has nothing to do with being a good composer, but it has something to do with getting some royalties. And uh, ASCAP also pays royalties based on the venue. Carnegie Hall, you're going to get a pretty good uh, royalty performance payment for that. Most of my performances have been in churches and educational institutions. ASCAP doesn't collect royalties from churches. ASCAP will probably have a blanket license with any music conservatory or college education kind of performing. So for me, I report every performance that I have to ASCAP and ASCAP sort of surveys the field and gradually picks out names from a hat and says, okay, you're getting a royalty for that, you're getting a royalty for that, because churches don't collect a lot of income from performances, and neither do colleges. They tend to be free performances. But ASCAP collects enough money to distribute a pool of money to some composers. And ASCAP has every year the ASCAP Plus Award, which is designed to award people who have been performing mostly in colleges and in churches. And so you report all of your performances to them once a year, and you'll probably get an ASCAP Plus award. And that's where I get actually most of my ASCAP income from. Hmm. So you asked also, when do you start charging performers for commissions? I think the answer to that is, you'll know. Um, I'm happy to have my music performed. Uh, If you're going to pay me for it as a performer, I I doubt that's going to happen. It's much more likely that I, as a composer, am going to pay you as a performer for performing my piece. But I get the back end from collecting royalties from ASCAP for the performance. Sure. Feel free to not answer if you don't want to, but I'm just curious, like, what are the actual numbers financially you would get from a well-paying performance? For me, any individual piece of music that I've written if it's performed in a good paying venue, tends to bring back about 90 to $100 per performance. So the trick is get more performances. That's why I'm not quite so concerned about whether or not performers are paying me for a commission. Yeah. If a performer comes up to you and says, I would like you to write a piece for me, call that a commission. Don't ask for any money, but you, you have been commissioned to write a piece of music. And If it happens to be a well-established name, great. You can say, I was commissioned by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. You know, nobody comes up to you and says, oh, how much did they pay you for that? They just say, wow, he must be a good composer. I'm going to commission him too. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, one last thing I was going to bring up too is, um, so you've worked a little bit on children's musicals. Yeah, children's musicals, um, I moved to New York City hoping to become a Broadway composer because I thought I love composing and Broadway's where the money is. Well, actually, Broadway is a much more closed society than classical music because classical music isn't so much of a profit-driven entity. Broadway musicals, you're only going to get investors if there's a potential for profit. So it's a much more conservative area. 
I was very fortunate to finally meet somebody who was the right collaborator for me. Her name is Emily Thompson, and she teaches in a grade school, so that was great. She has the ability to get musicals performed at her school. She writes the book, she writes the lyrics, and sends it on to me, and I write the music. It's a very collaborative enterprise. We think of composers as sitting in their lonely rooms with their piano in front of them and some staff paper and a pencil, and they just throw their hands into their hair and they you know, tear their hair out trying to write the best piece of music possible. But you don't have anybody to get some feedback from. When you're writing a musical, you get feedback right away. The lyricist will tell you, oh, that wasn't what I was going for. I was looking for something a little bit more evil. I said, really? The lyrics don't sound evil. Yeah, but you know what? This is one of those kinds of pieces where the lyrics sound like this, but the music has to sound like that. And you say, well, I wish you would have told me that before we started. (laughs) So you just kind of throw pieces away right away. You write this music and you think it's the best thing you could have ever done and you just have to throw it away. And so I guess what you learn is, is the music working for what you're trying to say? Well, Richard, it's been great talking with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Richard Russell. You can go to rdrussell.com to check out his blog and more of his music. And I also have links to all the music you heard in this episode at composerquest.com slash Richard. Again, I highly recommend checking out Richard's podcast, Creativity and Composition, which you can find on iTunes. And he mentioned that this podcast interview got him excited to try some more new podcast episodes, which I hope he does. As always, you can email me, charlie at composerquest.com, if you want to say hi or provide some suggestions for future episodes. You can also tweet at ComposerQuest or like ComposerQuest on Facebook. Thanks again for listening, and I'll leave you with a piece that Richard composed based on an Emily Dickinson poem called The Heart Asks Pleasure First. <laughs>